Um, it really is a pleasure to be with you. I love coming and seeing you guys. Uh, and I think last time I was with you was in December, uh, but it's great to be back. As we begin today, I, I, I just love the way the Lord leads uh, Jenny to choose the songs and her prayer. There was so much in that, and even in the prayer meeting before the, the service, so much in that that, that is going to be in this message today. Um, and I want us to start thinking about false promises of blessing. False promises of blessing. I'm sure you've all heard messages uh, from people, uh, maybe on the radio, maybe on the TV, maybe even people you know, who teach uh, certain things about blessing in this life. Christians should never get sick. Christians should always be wealthy. God wants you to be prosperous. God wants you to never struggle. God wants you to have that promotion. God wants you to have that child you've been wanting for. God wants your kids to be saved. God wants this or that or the other. And these people who teach these things, teach them in such a way that if they don't happen, then there's something wrong with your faith. There's something, Or maybe you're not a Christian at all if these things don't happen. And you hear these things taught like they are fact, like they are true, and that there's a deficiency in us if this doesn't happen. If you're unwell, then it's because you've got a lack of faith. These are the kinds of things that have been come to be characterized as the prosperity gospel. That God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And as with any error, as with any lie, teaching, there is a kernel of truth. There is a kernel of truth in there. And the reality is, is that the Bible does talk about blessing. The Bible does talk about happiness. And we're going to talk about that today, but we're going to look at it from a biblical perspective. And we're going to see what the Bible says about the blessed life. So if you could turn to Psalm 119, and we're going to look at the first uh, eight verses of Psalm 119. Now this is a, this is a, a psalm that has made its way deeply into my heart over the last few months. Uh, and I just am really excited to be able to share this with you. I don't know how much you know about Psalm 119. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, just very briefly. Uh, if you were to open your Bible kind of dead center, you would get Psalm 119. And it is made up of 176 verses. It's not a chapter, it's a psalm. It's a song. It's been, it's to be sung, right? And it's the longest literary section in the Bible. It's, it's huge. And it's incredible. It's broken up into eight verse blocks, stanzas. And each of those stanza has a key feature. It's an acrostic poem. So the first verse of each of those lines in each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So for our, our stanza today, uh, we're looking at the Aleph stanza, which is A in the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter. And it just is really a part of this poetic majesty uh, that, the po- that the psalmist writes. And the focus of this psalm is God's word. The central part of your Bible, the central part of God's word, is God's word. So I'm sure that didn't happen by accident. And we're going to look at how God's word relates to the blessed life. 
Spurgeon said of Psalm 119 that it was a star in the firmament of the Psalms of the first and greatest magnitude. This is a glorious psalm. And it has so much to, to teach us and it has so much for us. And we're not going to be able to look at too much of it today. Just the first stanza. What I hope that we'll see today is that Psalm 119 verses 1 to 8 show us four critical aspects of living a blessed life that should deepen your love of God's word. Four critical aspects of living a blessed life that should deepen your love for God's word. And if you're like me and you like to have a structure and take notes, this is what it will look like. Verses 1 to 3 will be the definition of a blessed life. Verse 4 will show us the direction of a blessed life. Verses 5 and 6 will show us the desires of a blessed life. And verses 7 to 8 will show us the demeanor of a blessed life. And we'll get there uh, and I'll, I'll bring those out to you as we go along. But first of all, the definition. So what is this? What is this blessed life? So all these false teachers say, well, a blessed life is you've got to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Well, what does the Bible then say? Well, the first thing is this. It's blessed. Fairly obvious. Verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless? It's blessed. So, okay, well, what does blessed mean? It's not. But this word should ring a bell in our minds from something we've already heard today, right? Psalm 1. If you if you kind of have a, a finger in Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, you'll see right there at the beginning, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is a theme that the psalmist has used before. It's, it's talking about uh, blessedness and, and happiness. And look at what happens to the man who is blessed. He is planted. Like a tree, uh, sorry, he's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. A blessed life is one that's firmly rooted, it's prosperous, it bears fruit. Now, if your life was like that, how might you feel? Happy. The blessed life is a happy life. And that's really another way that that word blessed can be translated. And now your brains, because I know you guys are a well-taught congregation, you're already thinking of Matthew. And you're thinking, ah, yes, I know this word, blessed. I know this word, happiness. Makarios, right? In the New Testament, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus uses that. That's the New Testament equivalent of this word. Happy. Blessed are those who are humble in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are mourn. Happy. Jesus is painting a picture of those who will access the kingdom of heaven. And so is the psalmist. And in both cases, they're talking about the same person, the blessed one. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven will be blessed. And the one who is blessed will enter the kingdom of heaven. So a blessed life is one that's full of happiness. Now, happiness in this context doesn't mean the absence of sadness. It means the joy that Paul talks about. Remember in Philippians 4.11 where he talks about being content in all circumstances. Paul says he has joy and happiness despite the fact of all the trials that he went through. This isn't talking about an absence of difficulty. An absence is talking about a joy and happiness in spite of those things. The joy that James 1 refers to where he talks about... Despite the fact that you're going through trials, that you're being persecuted, you're being attacked. This is a deep and immovable, pervading happiness that characterizes the life of the blessed one. It's a happiness 
as whose wellspring, in the song, we had that word, thank you Jenny, is God himself. God is the wellspring spring of happiness. It is the regenerated life that he gives to the righteous ones who follow him. To the ones who love him and he loves, who observe his word. And we'll see that a little bit later. Sounds like a good life, doesn't it? Sounds enviable, sounds desirable. But there's a caveat. There's a caveat with this. As everything, this blessedness is only defined by God. God is the only one who gets to define what that blessedness is. Not the prosperity preacher, not me, but God. The blessedness must be by God's standards and not ours. And this is one of the key themes that the psalmist is trying to get over to us. It's all about God, Yahweh. It's all about him. We need to pause for a second right at the beginning and just consider this. We've got to remember that these are not just idle words, that these are not just words that are written by a poet to entertain. These are not just words like the orators in the New Testament that I talked about last time who were speaking to to gain power and gain influence and impress people. These are the words that are penned and promised by the Holy Spirit. It is a, it's not blessedness in the abstract. He's not just saying, well, there's blessedness floating around out there. Grab it if you can. He's saying, what? Blessed are those. That is available to people. It's not just some ethereal thing. It's a, it's a reality that can be applied to the people who love God. It's talking about being in the favor of God himself. This is the idea of God smiling on you. So remember when Jesus spoke to five and he said those things, who is he talking to? His disciples. He's talking to those who love God, trusting and following him. And it's the same thing here. The psalmist reminds us that the blessed ones are those who belong to God. If you belong to God today, you are a blessed one. And we might not always feel that, that the emotional reality of that, but it's a truth. That is attached to us as blessed ones, as people who are in God's kingdom. Does this characterize our lives today? Is this desirable for you? When you hear that, does your heart rise? Do you lift? Do you think, yes, that's what I want? Do you want to yell amen? But we're English, so we don't. If so, then this message is very important for you today. Because if you're a believer today, then you should be encouraged. This should drive us deeper into God's word because we'll see today that God's word is the focus and the source of all of this. But if not, if that doesn't characterize you today, if you are not in God's kingdom, if you are not in a relationship with Christ, if you haven't turned from your sin, even more important for you as we'll see right at the very end. So let's move to the second aspect of the definition of a blessed life. And I'll say at the outset, these two verses are really important right at the beginning of Psalm 119. They characterize the whole psalm and so we're going to go slow with these first two verses we will pick up as we get to the end we i promised anthony we'd be done in at least two hours so um so number two the second aspect of of uh, of a definition of a blessed life is that a blessed life is a blameless life blessed are those whose way is blameless so now we're told that a blessed life is one that's possessed by a person whose way is blameless And that word, way, literally means path. It's an idiom for the direction of someone's life. 
The way that a person lives, how they operate, the choices they make, the direction that their life is going in. What are they seeking after? How are they living? It's a word that's often used throughout scripture, but maybe we most remember it from um, Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. The, the path of our life, we have gone astray, and the Bible tells us very clearly that if we're not Christians, if we're not in a relationship with Christ, then our life has strayed from the path that God has planned. Our way is off kilter, and this is a major theme for the psalmist, again, throughout the whole 176 verse, brings it up over and over again. The way, the path, the walk, how, is, how does your life look, and what direction is it going in? And once again... It's a theme that Jesus demonstrates in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? In Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, he talks about two gates, two ways, the narrow and the wide. And he talks about how the narrow leads to salvation and the wide leads to destruction. These are themes that come throughout the Bible. And what the psalmist is saying here is that the one who is blessed is the one whose way, whose path is blameless. Now, that word should make us stop in our tracks. Blameless. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the word. The same word is used in a number of different settings um, throughout the, the Old Testament and the New. But we'll just look at, look at a couple. Job 1.1. You don't need to turn there. But Job 1.1, we're told about Job that there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Genesis 17:1. Abraham. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Proverbs 11:20. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. You see how this theme of walk and blamelessness comes up over and over again. So it's clearly something that is expected from us. And it's something that's attributed to sinful people. Abraham, Job, us, we're all sinful. So it can't mean that you have to be perfect in order to have a blessed life. It can't mean that. Let's not get this confused with what Jesus says back in Matthew 5, 48, about being holy because the Father is holy. He's talking about salvation, right? He's talking about our acceptability to God. The psalmist here is talking to people who are believers and saying that you can have that blessed life. So we've got to keep that distinction. God does require perfection from those who are not saved. And the fortunate reality is that Christ has achieved that for us. Yes? So that means that that, that that's a reality. That's something that is achievable through Christ. And here he's talking to those who would live the life, that your way needs to be blameless. And that word, blameless, means complete or finished. And another word that might help us is the idea of integrity. So something is complete, if a building is complete, it has integrity, structural integrity. It isn't, it doesn't have a blemish, it's it's not going to crack in it. Now that might still not, not be helping us. So let's look to the next thing. What is it that needs to be blameless? Is it the person? Look at the text. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. How blessed are those whose way is complete. 
Is it the one himself? No, it's his walk. It's his way. It's the way he goes about his life that needs to be blameless. So those who are blessed, but they're sinful, fallen human beings, their life needs to be one that reflects that blamelessness. They walk a life of integrity. They are, to use a New Testament term, above reproach in the way they live their lives. Their life is something that brings delight. So the third part of our definition of the blameless life, that a blessed life belongs to God. A blessed life belongs to God. Look at the last part of verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. The thing I didn't mention before is one of the characteristics of Psalm 119 is that it uses eight synonyms for God's word. And they just come up over and over again throughout the psalm. Uh, and we see the first of the synonyms here for God's word, for the Bible, for scripture, which is the law of God. And we're right back to our walk way metaphor. So now not just talking about the general direction of their life, how they function in their walk. How is it characterized? Well, what does their walk look like? Well, it looks like the law of the Lord. Their walk is characterized by the law of the Lord. And this first synonym here is really important. And what the psalmist is saying right in the first verse is that everything is God's word. Everything. It all comes back to God's word. It is central. It is pivotal. It is pivotal. Walk the verse back in your mind. The way someone is blessed is by walking in the direction and manner that God dictates through his word. The walk of the blessed life is characterized and defined by God's word. And you might be wondering why it says law. Why doesn't it just say Bible or God's word? Well, to to quote one of my professors, it does say that. It's just using technical language to say that. And that's that word law. And it's a word that you might be familiar with, Torah. Right? It's it's a word that we use for the first five books of the of the Old Testament. But the word itself means direction, instruction. It means law. And it's been defined as, this term has been defined by one commentator as a course of guidance from above. That's what the law is. The law is a course of guidance from above. And this is what was given in the Pentateuch, wasn't it? That's what Israel needed. They needed this guidance. They needed structure. They needed something from God. They needed his instructions to know how to live. And now look at the last word in the first verse. Yahweh, capital Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. The only way to describe this blessed life is defined by Yahweh, by God himself. It is his law. This is not made by men. It's not influenced by men. It's not approved by men. God didn't get a council together and say, hey, you guys, check this out. Make sure this is okay before I write it down. This is from God, by God, for God, for his people so they can worship God. Yahweh's law is the only way to define a blessed life. The only way that we can define it is according to God's word. The one and only word of the one and only God. The earth creating, man originating, love giving, covenant keeping, promise fulfilling God. 
We don't get to redefine. We don't get to reinterpret. We don't get to change. We don't get to modify. We don't get to add. We don't get to take away. We don't get to fudge bits that we think, oh, well, I could have written this slightly better. This is God's word on his terms, his way, for his glory. This is the blessed life. Now we have three more aspects to our definition. So let's move to verse 2. Blessed life bears witness. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. A blessed life bears witness. So the next aspect of our definition is one who keeps something. Uh, And that word literally means where it says keep, it means to keep or to guard. To look after, protect. Uh, Or in this context, in relation to God's word, means to abide, to live by, to follow. The blessed life is one that knows and keeps God's word. If you remember 1 John 2, verses 4 to 5, and you don't need to turn there, but he says, By this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So what is it the blessed one keeps, guards, or protects, or follows, or obeys? Your version may say statutes or decrees, but a, a more helpful word um, is the word testimonies. I think if you have an NASB, an ESV, or an LSB, that, that should be in there as testimonies. And this is our second synonym for God's word. And it's different from Torah. It has a slightly different understanding. The word testimony means to bear witness. Like when we give a testimony, we're bearing witness to what God has done in our lives, right? Well, God's word is God's testimony. And I think he uses this for reasons. A God-focused reason and a man-focused reason. First of all, because the Bible is God bearing witness to himself. Bearing witness to his acts, he is, to his attributes, to his laws, to his ways. And most importantly, to, to who he is, to his person, so that we can know him. It's how God has chosen to record his revelation to us. It's how we know how we know about him. And it's always been his preferred method to speak and to have written down. We see that throughout the Old Testament, where he'll come to someone and say, I'm going to tell you this, write it down. And in the New Testament too, we have many accounts of that to John. So God's preference, God's way is bearing witness to himself through his word. And the second is the more man-focused. But when God's children keep his word, they bear witness to him. So the Bible is God's witness of himself, and our witness of him is our lives, the way we live, the way we act. Our lives speak loudly, spend our time, our money, the way we go, do, the way we act at work. This all gives testimony to who our master is. So what we see there is that a blessed life is witness to the one who gives that blessing. And we're starting to move a little bit quicker. The the fifth aspect of our definition is that the blessed life boldly seeks or boldly desires. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their hearts. The last part of the definition is someone, or, or the penultimate part, I should say, is someone who is seeking. This is a searcher. 
Someone who is characteristically and ongoingly looking for something. Now, I was introduced to a little bit of American culture when I moved here. And I was told about uh, something called raccoon hunting. Um, and uh, I was told that there's a, a breed or, or the, the dogs that are used for, for, for coon hunting are called coon hounds. And uh, I had a friend and he was explaining to me how they're trained and what they do. And, and he was explaining to me that when these coon hounds get a lock on a raccoon, that they just go like crazy. That they can get a slight whiff of this raccoon anywhere around them and they will hunt that thing down. There's nothing that will stop them. They will go through rivers, over trees, through bushes, you know, everywhere to get to this coon, to get to this raccoon. He gives his all and he'll bark and run himself ragged until he gets to his goal. That coon hound seeks with his whole heart. He is a wholehearted seeker with all his being. And just and you've probably heard this a billion times, but when, we, when we're looking at the Old Testament particularly and we're thinking about um, Hebrew culture and, and, and their understanding, when, when we see the word heart, we're not thinking the seat of emotions. We're not thinking, oh, you know, he just has all these warm, fuzzy feelings. The heart in the Hebrew mind was the mind. That was the core of the person, the mind. That was the thing that controls the emotions, controls the affections, controls the heart. So when we see heart, we could also put mind in there. He seeks with all his mind. This isn't just an emotional, senseless act. This is a considered, thoughtful process. And it's an interesting thing that we see here in the verse. What is he seeking after? And this might be the point we might expect to see another word, for a synonym for God's word, right? He seeks after God's word with all his heart. And we would expect it to say that the blessed life is, is one that seeks God's word with all his heart. And there are many who speak that way. You know, Jenny, I think, or someone at the beginning of the service mentioned about um, being a Bible-believing church. And not, I think it was Jenny in her prayer, not being too proud about being a Bible-believing church. And people look at those of us who take the Bible seriously and they say that we love the Bible more than God. We love the academic knowledge more than we love the, the, the person of, of God. And people can get very pious about their relationship with God and say, well, I don't, I don't need a book to, to tell me how to love God. I, I, don't, I don't need that because love isn't about following rules in a book. Well, look, we're not saying that. What's the definition of a blessed life? One who seeks him. One who seeks him. Who seek him with all their heart. The seeker, with his whole heart thrown in, must passionately, tirelessly, at all costs, at the expense of his own life, seek God. But look at the words surrounding it in the text. It's all those synonyms for God's word. One commentator said it like this. The purpose of knowing the word of God is to know the God of the word. Again. The purpose of knowing the word of God is to know the God of the word. The reality is, apart from God's word, we can't know him. That's the whole point of his self-revelation. We see that already. People laugh at you for taking your Bible seriously. Our response needs to be that God takes it seriously. He's preserved his word for thousands and thousands of years. And when people say they love God, not some dust, ask them some questions. How do you know that God? 
How do you know what he likes? How do you know what his preferences are? How do you know what makes him angry? How do you know anything at all about God? You didn't just sit in a field one day and all of a sudden come up with this relationship with God and, and, and have everything that you needed to know in order to love him. That didn't happen. The only way that we can know God is through his word. And the wonderful thing about then being a Christian, when we come to him, when we turn from our sin, is he gives us his spirit, which helps us understand the word better, and we have a real relationship with him. But you can't convince me that you know God apart from his word, because it's through his word that we truly know him. We keep his statutes, we walk according to his law, because that helps us love him more. So does that characterize your seeking of God? Do you desire him so greatly that things like entertainment, friends, work, family, that those things allow you to be distracted from pursuing him? The reality is we all need to work on this, don't we? We all need to work on our desire for the Lord. We all need to seek him more. But can we say we're seeking him with our whole heart, with our whole mind? Is that really what our preoccupation is? I pray that it is, but if it isn't, then we need to do some self-assessment. The last part of definition of the blessed life is that the blessed life blossoms, verse 3. Verse 3, they do no wrong, but follow his ways. And the final aspect of the definition is similar to the blameless way. We see here, and what, and, and what we're seeing is like a panoramic view. It's like we're, we're zooming out, the camera's zooming back, and we're taking in the landscape of someone's life. Right? This isn't the minutia now. This is stepping back and, and taking the wide-angle view of someone's life. And we see that it is a life that is not characterized by wrongdoing. It's, not a, li- it's a life that is blossoming. And again, it isn't a claim of perfection. It's not a claim of perfection. Do not claim that Christians can live a literally perfect life. I, we sin every day. We get it wrong all the time. That's why we need such a gracious God. But what it's claiming is that it's characteristic of their life. That the general character of their life, the general panorama of their life, is one that is not characterized by wrongdoing. So again, think about First John 2. John says that he's writing to the people so that they may not sin. Right? And he, but then he does say, and there is forgiveness. That's if you're in Christ. But then Paul picks up this idea, and, and Paul talks about in Romans 6 that this is not a license to sin. Together are saying that the expectation of the life of a believer is that they live a life that's not characterized by sin, not characterized by wrongdoing. And Paul adds to that this clear clarification in 1 Corinthians 9.27, where he talks about that famous thing about beating his body into submission, right? He's not just sat there passively saying, well, God will do it all, I'm all good. He actively fighting the sin in his life. That's what characterizes a real Christian. Not that they're comfortable with their sin, that they fight against it daily. But John reminds us that although the expectation is that there is um, a fighting against sin, that there is grace for when we mess up. Not that it's okay that we sin, but that Christ has already paid the price for that. 
So the part of this definition is that our lives should blossom. They shouldn't be characterized by wrongdoing. Spurgeon says this, A believer who errs is still saved, but the joy of his salvation is not experienced by him. He is rescued but not enriched, greatly born with but not greatly blessed. And I think that's the point for the believer. That we do mess up, we do get it wrong. And that affects practically our relationship. That does affect his daily blessings on our lives in some way, shape or form. So we've seen the definition of the blessed life in verses 1 to 2. And we'll pick up the pace from here out. So the blessed life is, just to remind you, the blessed life is blessed. The blessed life is a blameless life. The blessed life belongs to God. The blessed life bears witness. The blessed life boldly desires or seeks. And the blessed life blossoms. Now we have that definition in place. We can move through the final three points, which will be the direction, the desires, and the demeanor of a blessed life. So let's go to verse 4, the direction of a blessed life. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Now, you'll notice from the very beginning, from that first word, you, the focus has changed, right? So he's not focusing on the blessed life anymore. He's not focusing on on the, the one who is living the blessed life. He's focusing on God. And that you, that pronoun there in the Hebrew is emphatic. He's, he's making a point. He's saying this, the focus has shifted and it shifted to God. And it stands in contrast to this previous uh, flow of thought. We're supposed to shift our thinking to him being this focus. Why? Because right now, God is the one directing the proceedings. He is the one directing the believer's life, uh, life. Look at what the psalmist says that God has done. He has commanded or ordained that you might have there. Or might, you might have laid down or arranged his precepts. And the word uh, translated here that, that you might have as, as ordained is uh, the idea of giving a command or giving an order. God has dictated, God has ordered, God has commanded his precepts. And precepts goes together with that because precepts means orders or charges, or charges things that we're charged to do, orders that we're given. And the idea here is that God is the one who has the authority to command. He is the one who has the authority to direct the life, the blessed life. The direction of the blessed life is defined and laid out by God. And his commandments are to be absolutely, completely, and fully obeyed. This is one who has absolute authority and autonomy to make the rules. He is sovereign. As Colossians 1, 16 to 17 reminds us, speaking of Christ, we're told, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Here's the reality. When you speak creation into existence out of nothing and you command the oceans and the, and the stars, then you get to make the rules. You get to define the terms. You get to do, as with any king, what the king wants to do. You expect to be obeyed. You direct your subjects. And the literal way to translate the end of the verse, you, you've pro- you might have, keep them diligently. The NASB says, keep them diligently. 
But the, the literal way to translate that is to keep exceedingly. Your version, yeah, again, you might, it might say diligently. But this helps us see how proactive we need to be, right? Whether it's to keep exceedingly or, or to be diligent, we, ha- we can't just stumble through the Christian life. You don't be- get saved, then figure it all out, and then you just kind of swan through the Christian walk and, and get everything right. It's hard work. If you've been a, a believer more than five minutes, you recognize that it's hard work. And Jesus even said that. And, and he laid the expectation down for his disciples. Hey, this is easy life. A nice, comfy, warm bed. And that's the re- that should bring us comfort if that's how you're feeling right now, because that is the Christian walk. It's not supposed to be, I think, American term, a cakewalk. It's not supposed to be easy. We need to get after it. We've got to put the effort in. We've got to work hard. Diligence is something that requires uh, dedication and effort. Christian life isn't a walk in the park. Directed and dictated by the king. So verses 5 and 6 show us the next aspect of the blessed life is that what we see is the desires of a blessed life. The desires of a blessed life. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast in obeying your decrees. And here we see the the response of the psalmist to the direction that is set by Yahweh. And your version might have O there at the beginning of that. Oh, and then something. And I've always found that really strange to look at. Like, how do you read that? Oh, oh, oh. I, 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 ne- I never quite know, you know, how, how do we read that? How do we, how, what's the psalmist saying here? And I think maybe a helpful phrase to insert in there would be, if only, if only. His desire is that Yahweh would establish his way. He says, if only my ways may be established. If only, Yahweh, you would establish my ways to keep your statutes. It's a plea. It's a cry. It's one who loves God and he's saying, Lord, I want to live the way you want me to live. Show me. Do it for me. Help me. So this first desire is to be established. So his first desire is established in order to be able to obey or keep God's statutes. Now, I don't know if we have any horticulturalists in here. Uh, If you... I think you say a green thumb, we say green fingers, which to me makes far more sense. But, okay, it's fine. Um, and in England, people don't have gardens, they have gardens. And and that means the grass is the garden, the flower bed is the garden. If you the garden too, we have gardens. Um, and if you're someone who, who has a nice garden, which has got lots of good flowers or plants or hedges or even the grass is good, we would say it's a well-established garden. If the trees and the bushes and the, and the flowers and the hedges, if they can withstand hard winters uh, and, and, well, mediocrely hot summers in England, then we would say it's an established garden. And the reason it's been established is because those roots have gone down deep. Those roots have gone down deep. And regardless of what happens, the plants and, and trees, they're able to get nutrients. And immediately our minds should straight back to Psalm 1 again. That's the image of the tree planted by the streams of flowing water. Why can it bear fruit in season and out? Why can it be so hardy? Why is it so strong? Because it's well established. It's rooted down deep. And it's got its nourishments uh, that it needs. And the psalmist's desire is that he would be that tree. God's desire for us is that we would be those trees. That we would be the established garden. That we would be that strong tree. 
And interestingly, when we look at this, the act is passive. He's not saying, I will establish myself. He's saying, God, establish me. Oh, that my ways would be established. I can't do it, but I need you to do it for me. And that is the mark of the Christian life. We can't do it. We have a God who can. We need to trust in him. And that's this mark of establishment. He can't do it himself. He needs God. And the writer recognizes this, that he, that he needs him to do the work. And yes, he has his responsibilities. Yes, he needs to desire. Yes, he needs to keep working. Yes, he needs to be diligent. But he needs to be... Why does he want to do it? Why does he want to be established? So that he can keep God's statute. And this synonym for God's word has the idea of something engraved or inscribed. It's something set or written down by God and recorded. He's saying, write this on my heart. I I just want my life to be characterized by your word. So that's the first desire. The second desire he has in verse 6 is that he shall not be ashamed. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. The idea of shame is something that is easy for us to relate to. When we consider how wonderful God is, how amazing Christ is, how amazing salvation is, how wonderful and beautiful Jesus is, how much we don't deserve the salvation and the love and the grace that we've been given, how poorly we live up to the way he has set before us, how often we fail. It's so easy for us to be ashamed, especially when we sin yet again, when we make that mistake yet again, when we say that thing yet again, when we do that thing yet again. Then we read God's word, when we look at God's word, and we feel ashamed. That word ashamed is talking about personal and private disgrace. It's not talking about a public shaming, which in this culture and in uh, certainly in the Middle East and and, and in other parts of Central Asia, the idea of shame is is very strong and very pervasive and and very, it's, it's one of the worst things that anyone could experience. But this is something worse than that. This is something, this is a personal shame. Between you and God. Because God sees all and he knows all. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in our minds. This is a shame the psalmist doesn't want to feel. He doesn't want to, when he comes to God's word, he doesn't want to feel this this shame that he isn't living up, that he isn't doing what he should be doing. If there's an area in your life today that hasn't been dealt with, if there's an area that maybe you need to confess Maybe it's something you haven't admitted to yourself. Or maybe it's just something you've been working through for a long time. These things need to be dealt with. These things need to be brought to the Lord. Get help. And Pastor Anthony, that's what he's here for. It's his job. Come talk to him. I'm trying to add to your workload. Um, he, he, this is why God gave us people to be around us as believers. To help us with these things. It's not shameful To admit that we're struggling. It's a way to get past the shame. To get into our relationship with God. To admit that that we can't do this on our own. We need God, but we need other people too. That's why meeting as a church is so important. But maybe today you're not a believer. Maybe you're not living the blessed life. Maybe you're not in a relationship with Christ today. That is the greatest shame. Because one day you will stand before the Lord eternal. You will stand and be judged. 
And the question you'll have, <laughs> that you'll have to ask is whether you want to be judged by your righteousness or by Christ's. And that will be the greatest shame. And that will be an eternal shame that will stay with you forever. These are things that we need to deal with, whether we're believers or not today. Now, it isn't just that he doesn't want to be shamed, but look at when shame comes into play. It's when he looks upon God's commands. And I like, I actually like the ESV best here as it says that the sense is really the idea of looking towards something uh, and looking towards confidently, really assessing it. And it's the word that God uses when he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, uh, when he's looking at Eliab uh, and, and God says to Samuel, don't look at the outside, don't look at this, don't make that assessment based on what you see on the outside, uh, don't take those things into account. Well, in our verse, the psalmist is weighing, looking towards, taking into account all of God's commands. And he knows that if he is obeying all of God's commands, then that analysis won't bring him the of knowing that he's living in unrepentant or unaddressed sin. So we come finally to the demeanor of a Christian, of a blessed life. We've seen the definition the direction, and the desire, and now the demeanor. A demeanor is the way that someone carries themselves, their attitude, the the way they go about things. And we'll see three demeanors or attitudes here. A demeanor of worship, a demeanor of teachability, and a demeanor of obedience. So first of all, verse 7. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. What do we see? Praise. Praise. Isn't that the right response to God? Isn't that what God's word should promote in us? Isn't that what a relationship with God should, should bring for? When we're, when we recognize how much we have to be thankful for in Christ? Psalm 717. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 9-1. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wondrous deeds. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the right response for all believers. That's the response of a blessed life for all people, because he is worthy of all praise. But then look what the psalmist says. When will he do this? When will this praise, what will cause him to worship? God's righteous laws. When he learns God's righteous laws, that will cause him to worship. And that goes back to our previous point. How can you worship a God you don't know? How can we say, oh, you know, I, I, I really just love worshipping God in song, for instance. But we don't know anything about the God that we're singing about. If we neglect God's word, which teaches us who he is, how can we possibly worship him? That's why we are people of the book. We are people of the way. We are people of the book. And it's not that we worship the book itself. It's that we worship the God that the book tells us about. Because otherwise we don't know him. So otherwise, how can we worship him? This is a knowledge that is tied up. Worship is a result of a knowledge that is tied up. And we can only attain through God's word. And that word there 
which it says learn is a word that is used throughout Psalm 119. This is another of his key themes. And it's this idea of teachability. And this is the, the next point. Teachability. And it's actually the Old Testament word for discipleship. And what the, what the psalmist is saying is, I want to submit myself to learning. I want to submit myself to understanding what God is teaching. And this is the, uh, the, this, this, the second idea of, of, of here in the, in the last verse is that teachability is the second demeanor that we see in the blessed life. You know, it's funny because as a seminary student, you come because you don't know anything. Well, I do. <laughs> and, um, you, you come to learn. And yet then you get there and you get there for a little while and you don't quite like admitting that you don't really know something. You know, and people are talking about, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And you have no clue what's going on. Uh, and, and, you know, people are discussing some fine point of theology and, and you're sat there and you don't, it's just something sinful and prideful and weak and pathetic inside you doesn't want to admit you don't know it. How stupid is that? Like, this is what the psalm is saying. He's saying, I don't know it. I don't know anything. So I need to submit myself to God so I can learn. And as we learn more, as we grow more, then we understand more about this God that we're trying to know about. And it results in the final demeanor, which is obedience. Verse 8. I shall keep your statutes. I shall keep your statutes. And this really is where the stanza is summed up. The psalmist is determined to obey. He says, I will keep your statutes. I shall keep your statutes. He recognizes the importance of obedience. Just as Jesus said in John 14, 15, the response of love, the response to love is obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. Jesus says that obedience isn't legalism if done in the right way and for the right motives. It's the evidence of love. Obedience is a good thing, son, listen. Obedience is a good thing, all right? Obey your parents. This is one of the commandments. This is one of the things that we're told that we want to teach to our children. He's sinking down in his seat now. Obedience is so important, but it's not just for children. It's for us too. When I go home and I'm impatient with my wife, I'm being disobedient to God. I'm taking glory away from God. Obedience is the salvation of everything that he's saying. And the second half of the verse helps us see that the psalmist knows he needs help. Again, he's determined to obey his Lord, but he knows he can't do it from sheer force of will. He says, do not forsake me utterly. Lord, I'm going to keep your commands. I'm going to follow your word. Help me, because I can't do it. I need your help. One commentator said this, The fixed resolution to obey is intimately blended with a consciousness of incapacity to do so, unless aided by a divine grace. Just say that again. The fixed resolution to obey is intimately blended with a consciousness of incapacity to do so, unless aided by divine grace. We can have all the willpower in the world to keep God's word, But unless we rely on his spirit, unless we recognize we can't do it in our own strength, it's not going to work. We have to live in faith. We have to trust that he is there with us. And we have to rely on the strength that he gives in order to be able to do the things the psalmist is talking about here. 
The psalmist understands his dependence on the Lord. Do we? Do we understand? Do we really get that? Do we really believe that? When we say, I can do nothing apart from God, do you, do we really believe that today? I was wrestling that with that this morning as I was praying and, and thinking, do I truly believe that? And I realized that the reality is, is that yes, I can do loads of things without God, but do they bring any glory to Him? No. Are they good for me? Probably not. Do I get the blessings that God is talking about if I do them on my own and in my own power and for my own satisfaction? No. So he's not saying physically that if, 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 that, um, if I wasn't a Christian, I can't get up and walk out of here and go to work and do, do my job. But he's saying that you can't bring glory to God in it. You can't honor him. And that is the whole point of this life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We need to rely on the spirit to do the work that God has laid before us. So we've seen the definition, the direction, the desire and the demeanor of the blessed life. We've seen how God's word is the focus and the center of all of this. And that the only way to live a life that pleases God is to have true joy and to know and obey his word. But just as we close, I'd like us to look back again at the last little bit of verse 8. Do not forsake me utterly. Because I think there's a gospel implication here for us. That word forsake means to abandon, means to reject, means to leave. The psalmist knows his failings and being a faithful one, he recognizes that he needs God's help to be obedient and follow all he's been told. And you see throughout the rest of Psalm 119 that the writer recognizes the reality that the blessed ones won't be forsaken. God is a promise keeping, covenant keeping God. He does not forsake his word. He does not forsake his people. So if that's you today, you will not be forsaken. Trust in him. Believe what God's word teaches about him. And be joyful, happy in the fact that Romans 8.28 applies to you. He works for the good of those who love him. He desires your good in his context, remember. He gets to define what the good is. But if you are not one of those today, then the reality is is that is there on the page for you to see that you'd be forsaken. The wages of sin is death. And unless you take what this book says, unless you take the Savior contained in these pages seriously, then you're lost. And if you are that person, if that is the state of your then I know Pastor Anthony would love to talk to you afterwards. I would love to. But these aren't things that we can leave. Let me close with and he wrote these words after right at the end of his exposition of this stanza of Psalm 119 and he says this and let this encourage us as we finish and according to this holy doctrine let us prostrate ourselves before the fact of our good God in confessing our faults beseeching him calling out to him that it would please him to give us an appetite that we may feel what a pleasure he gives us when he communicates his word familiarly.
instruct us thereby not only to understand and discern between good and evil, but that we may also be sure and certain of his love and goodwill towards us, so that living under his charge and command, we may run to him. That in the midst of the miseries and wretchedness of this world, he will make to everlasting bliss and the glory immortal which has been purchased for us once for all by our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, his son. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we've been reminded today of how much we need you. We've been reminded today of how much we need your word, how much we need to understand your word better. We've been reminded of how weak we are and how much we need to depend on your spirit in order to live this life that you've laid before us. As believers today, we ask that you would help us to walk the path you have laid in front of us, that we would walk it faithfully, that we would diligently run after you, that we would seek you with all our heart. And Lord, I pray for those today who can't pray that prayer. Whether it be people here or whether it be our friends or family members, loved ones who don't know you, may their hearts be changed. May they turn and come to Christ. We give you thanks for your glorious word and your wonderful son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.